You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. With that said, we are in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians called United in Christ. The big idea, you might remember, one of the main points made in the book of Ephesians is that a Christian is reconciled to God through his or her unity to Christ. And there's a lot in that statement. Like, what did Christ do? And we talk a lot about that, and we'll get into that more today. We'll also see in the second half of Ephesians that if you are united in Christ, then God calls you to live in a particular way requisite of your faith. So chapters 1, 2, 3, highly theological. Chapters 4, 5, 6, very practical. Touching on things like marriage, parenting. What does it mean just to live a godly life? Okay, I'm a Christian, now what? And so we're going to be wrestling with a ton of stuff in the book of Ephesians. We've gone slowly through Ephesians 1 so that we could see the various theological theological truths just littered throughout this particular chapter, and in particular, the first half of Ephesians 1. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, just give me the Bible. I don't need theology. And I really do appreciate, like, the heart behind that. There are people who want to get into God's Word. And so I appreciate the heart, but here's what I would say. Theology, which is what we have in Ephesians 1, theology is like the bones in your body. Without the bones in your body, you are like a glop of human flesh. Without theology, the ideas of Holy Scripture would lie in like an unshaped mass. And so these theological truths in Ephesians 1, we have redemption, adoption, election, inheritance. What does that mean? They're important. And we want God's word to speak to us this morning and continue to speak to us as he already has been speaking to us through this beautiful and elegant and theologically deep book. So I want to do me the honor to pray one more time, please, because um, I need God's help. And then we'll dive into these two verses, Ephesians, 11, uh, Ephesians 1, 11, and 12. Lord God, I express my need independence upon the Spirit this morning, this afternoon. I need your help. We come under your word, but we also want to be changed by your word. And we want to be led into a place from this particular text to a place of praise, knowing that this world is full of idols. Indeed, what John Calvin said is correct. Our, our hearts are idol factories And we need your help to reset our mind and our heart and our affections upon you, O God. So lead us to that end this morning. Amen. In several sermons on Ephesians 1, I have mentioned this chapter should lead us to worship. It's a doxology. I imagine the angels of heaven rejoicing as the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put ink to parchment. Even when you see how the whole universe is put together with purpose, the stars and the sky, the cells in your body, you realize that even the trials and difficulties of your life do not undermine God's ultimate purpose and plan. If you see all this, then you cannot help but praise God. It's like, whoa. 
Furthermore, your life in scope and in detail is a part of his plan. Your life is a part of God's plan. Therefore, you are included in this design by God to bring him praise. Like, pause, think. You, insert your name, me, are a part of God's design to bring him praise. The one who put the stars in place created you as a part of his grand design, as a part of his purpose, as a part of his plan. That's true. The ramifications are massive. When you consider all God has done for his people through Christ, you are left with really only one appropriate response. You, you worship God with your life. You praise God for who he is and for what he has done for you. Like Ephesians 1, as I keep saying, it's just jaw-dropping. It's unbelievable, Ephesians 1, it's unbelievable until God shows you, shows you it to be believed. <laughs> Here's a quick highlight of the pattern of praise in Ephesians, at least these particular verses, 3 to 14. After saying you've been predestined for adoption several sermons ago, in verse 6, we read, to the praise of his glorious grace. Two weeks from now, you'll hear in more detail that because the Holy Spirit has sealed you for all eternity, Christian, your response should be what? Praise to God. And today, at the end of verse 12, we read that because of God's faithfulness, we are to respond to the praise of his glory. The resounding response to God from one generation to the next is praise to God. Here are a couple, a couple of meaningful quotations uh, from church history regarding this particular passage. John Calvin has said this regarding this particular verse, verse 12. This is why God chose us. Go back earlier to Ephesians. This is why God chose us. He wanted to extend his grace to be exalted. Anyone who fails to do this is guilty of trying to overturn the everlasting purpose of God. One more quote, a little bit longer, admittedly. Martin Bootser, a 16th century theologian and contemporary of John Calvin, was more specific in describing what it looks like to live a life of worship. Here are some of his thoughts on Ephesians 1. The power and grace by which God saves us ought rightly to be acknowledged by us and be glorified by a living faith in good works according to the way we feel that grace in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. By these good works. He's talking about how you praise God. By these good works. I say we ought to promote the interest of our neighbors and the glory of God, each of us according to the measure of the Spirit that we have received, so that everyone will be obliged to recognize God in us and be stirred up to proclaim his goodness, power, and wisdom. And here's this line. Everything we do, think about everything you do. Every, this is an absolute statement. Everything we do ought to bear this in mind. Everything comes from God and very little from us. But even the little counts for nothing unless we have been moved by God to do it because all our strength comes from him. And just wrapping up 
this particular quote. Again, I know it's longer. Since we have so much from God, why should we not direct all of our being toward him so that his name might be sanctified? He means holy, so that his name might be glorified and made holy in your life by everyone and that all people might be invited to accept and worship his goodness. So Calvin is right. God wants us to exalt him because of his grace. Because of his grace. Like, even more to the point, we praise God because of his lavish grace. Remember that from last week? He lavished his grace upon you. So we praise God. Bootser is spot on. What we do every single day of our life should be an act of worship to God. Everything we do. We are familiar with singing praise to God as an act of worship. But worship is so much more. I mean, we call this particular service Sunday celebration for a reason. What we're trying to get at is that everything we do here, and indeed your entire life, is an act of worship towards your Creator. Everything you do is ultimately praising Him. God is in us, and we should be stirred up to proclaim his goodness, power, and wisdom. Everything we do ought to bear this in mind. So if you're a Christian, you are designed to worship your faithful God. But here is what I know about life. And you know this too. It can be hard to worship God all the time. I mean, I'm not letting anyone off the hook by saying that. I know that for myself. It can be hard. Um, but here's the deal. I was thinking about this in terms of addiction. When we read all these praises in Ephesians 1, you ever, you ever hang out with an addict? You, you know this. You have to recognize the problem in order to make the correction. So can Sean Powers recognize that there's a worship issue at times in his life? If the answer is yes, then the question becomes, okay, what next? What do I do? I'm just trying to simply acknowledge the reality. Bad habits keep us from worshiping God. Sin is the antithesis to the worship of God because sin results in what does sin result in? In many respects, it results in self-worship. Speaking of self-worship, since the inception of sin from the Garden of Eden, humanity's disposition and nature are to worship the self in one way or another. Like even that golden calf. Think Ten Commandments. Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. Forty days they couldn't wait. And everyone's like giving their gold away so they can make a golden calf. Ultimately, that was about them. They wanted something to worship. That was about them. That was self-worship right there. And I don't think much is different in the 21st century. If anything, self-worship and self-praise has been amplified. Media, Hollywood, commercials, sports, school, and so much is tailored to promote the worship of the self. 
Um, I, I read this book, but you don't need to know anything about the book, but he makes an interesting observation. It's Professor Carl Truman. He says that what we're witnessing right now in Western culture is called expressive individualism. Don't necessarily need to know the term, but I do want to explain it because I think he's hitting a point. Expressive individualism mainly refers to the idea that to be fulfilled, to be an authentic person, to be genuinely you, you need to express outwardly or perform publicly that which you feel inside. So I, so I feel like this, therefore I'm going to project it outward. The expressive individualism in our culture, I think, in my opinion, is the epitome of narcissism. What can I do to turn things back in on me? I mean, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm confessing. I'm guilty. And I need the correction from God's word. From a Christian perspective, this is self-worship. Instead of your identity being in Christ... Your identity and the expression of your identity is determined by whatever you feel and the self-expression of how you feel. Not Christians who are navigating what it means to be expressive need to turn praise toward God instead of self. The multiple mentions of praising God in Ephesians made me think of an event that is the exact opposite of praising God. Uh, there might not be a more carnal example of expressive individualism than this they call it an experiment. It seems like a festival, but it's called Burning Man. You don't necessarily need to look it up, but uh, I'll tell you what it is. Burning Man. Burning Man is an annual experiment, their words, not mine, in temporary communi community dedicated to what? Self-expression and radical self-reliance. <laughs> From a Christian perspective, I'm both. Every year, over 70,000 people attend Burning Man. 70,000 people, they just pick a spot in the desert. They say, we're meeting here, and people just come in droves. And if you know anything about Burning Man, this festival or experience, and you might agree it could be the culmination of debauchery. Burning Man could be the apex of self-worship. And we see the imprints of this kind of activity and thinking all around society and culture. We do. So here's the deal. Here's what I know. Self-worship, expressive individualism, leads to a, a well low on water. You can drink for a while from the well of self-praise, but the well will run dry. What the people around us need in your communities, in your workplaces, what we need, what Sean Powers needs, is to direct worship and praise to an everlasting hope. We need to direct our praise to the one who offers what? What do we read in Scripture? The Gospel of John, living water. And so I hope you see the tension that I'm trying to develop before getting into the details of this passage. It's a longer introduction, but I did it on purpose. So Christian, in light of what God has done for you, are you worshiping yourself, something else, or do you worship God? You can ask that diagnostic question in many avenues of your life. Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 12, provide a healthy and biblical correction to expressive individualism and the worship of the self. 
These verses give a healthy correction, even if a person is not given into expressive individualism, but worships other things like sports or a job. Ephesians 1 helps us to see the importance of a course correction if you've allowed your heart to worship and praise something or someone other than the creator of the universe. So when you walk out of this place, when we enter or leave this particular facility, I want you to have a sense that your life, everything you do, everything you say, everything you feel is to the praise of God's glory. What we read in verses 11 and 12 and everything prior to those verses leads us to praising God. So all that said, let's now look at what we are seeing in verse 11. Here's the English Standard verse, version of this particular verse, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. We've run into that word before, predestined, several weeks ago. But here's the deal. I want to amend the first part of this verse with my own translation from the biblical Greek. I'm going to amend some of the language because I think, at least in this instance, the ESV, which I love, slightly misses the mark on what it's trying to say here. Here's how I want to translate this verse. I think it's more accurate, more faithful to the Greek, and I'm saying that to a bunch of scholars who translated the ESV, which is pretty weird, but whatever. Um, in him, we have been made an inheritance or heritage, having been predestined. You see how it's vastly different than what we read in the ESV. My amendment to this verse suggests there's a debate on how it should be translated, and that is granted 100%. This verse is one of the most difficult verses in the book of Ephesians to translate. In my study, it seems like the subject is God, the object is God's affection for those whom he has chosen. Further, the verb in this verse is in the past tense. So I think something has already been done and God is projecting forward in light of that. And in addition to the word predestined, I think it only solidifies my point. I would humbly submit that. But we've already seen how Paul highlights God's sovereign will to redeem in Ephesians 1 by saying, his people have been chosen, what? Before the foundation of the world. And God's people have been redeemed because he predestined them for what? Adoption. And now God is saying, in Christ, you have been predestined to be a, a heritage people. Or to say it another way, you have been predestined to be God's inheritance for all eternity. Remember how at the very beginning of Ephesians 1 verse 1, I, I, I said that when Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the implications Paul is making is God owns me. God owns me. Not the other way around. He's making a very important implication. In this verse, we can use the words heritage or inheritance. They have slightly different meanings, but they make similar points. You are God's because of God's sovereign choice. From a monetary perspective, an inheritance has to do with money. It can be money or land that a person receives when someone dies. In the first century, the land was inherited from a father to a son after the father died. Today, money typically tends to be what is inherited from one generation to the next. In this context, an inheritance is like earnest money. If you ever bought a house, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you likely need to put down earnest money in order to pay for the house. An earnest payment is a specific form or security deposit made in this major transaction. 
earnest money demonstrate a person is serious about completing the transaction. So once you put down the earnest money, you're not going to get it back. If this is true, God is serious about ensuring your final redemption. You have been redeemed through Christ. And God ensures you will be finally redeemed from this sinful world at the consummation of Christ's second advent. God has put down the earnest money for your life through his Son. If we opt for the term heritage, which I tend to lean toward and prefer, we talk about a deeper meaning of what God thinks about us. We are talking about your identity, your very identity. If you are God's heritage, then you have taken on the characteristics of God while, of course, being separate from God. If you are God's heritage, then your identity is in the Son of God. You see how this fits with the overall structure of Ephesians 1. In verse 5, we know the significance of adoption, which implies sonship. You, Christian, are God's daughter or son. And so this fits also with the theme of you are in Christ, which we've seen over and over again, in Christ, in him. I mean, if your identity is in Christ and not in yourself or the things of this world, then think about how you are impacted at every level of your life. From the emotions you experience to your good deeds, it all has its root and foundation in what you identify with, Christ. When God says you are his chosen heritage, your identity is accented to the like 100th degree and more. Even when someone or the world tries to place an identity claim on your life and it's mean or derogatory or it could be indifferent, whenever that happens, you know what you can do? Make a beeline to Ephesians 1 and there you will discover and remind yourself of your true identity. It is in Christ. You are his heritage people. In the Old Testament, Israel is said to be God's heritage. I want to share several verses from the book of Deuteronomy that directly connects with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allowed heritage. And then we also read, in Deuteronomy 9, for they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out, he's referencing being brought out of slavery from Egypt, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. The chosen people of Israel were not chosen because of anything in them. They were not more holy, more numerous, or more distinguished than any other nation. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> Me? <laughs> you? Like, no. Uh, Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You see how the language here kind of maps on with what we're seeing in Ephesians 1. His treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples. For you are the fewest. Like you guys were a nobody. And what does God do? He says, no, they're mine. You might be a nobody to everybody else, but you're mine. I'm going to do something with you. 
I mean, isn't that not the church? <laughs> Regardless of what the world says, what others think about Christians, we are God's. He has chosen us. We are his heritage. And that's vastly more significant than that tweet that you read. What that person said about you, that dig you received, vastly more important. So the natural reading in the New Testament is to say that you have been chosen to be a heritage for God, not because of anything in you, not because you're special, talented, good-looking, although, although you could be very talented and good-looking and special, right? Or whatever else have you. God chose you to be part of his heritage because he is faithful. It's God's faithfulness. Paul writes to the Ephesians church, not only trying to show them God's faithfulness throughout history, but that they are loved, not because of what is in them, but because of what is in God. His love is the reason why he chose them and God continues to be faithful. So, in Christ, you have been made an inheritance or heritage for God and for God's glory. In light of my amendment to verse 11, my slight alteration to the ESV, how should we apply this verse? What does it have to do with praising God? Indeed, the temptation to, to self-praise is squandered. If you concede it is God who created you, adopted you, redeemed you, forgiven you, and has made you his precious possession forever. Like, all self-praise goes, boom, no, ain't gonna happen. Look what God has done for me. And when I say God has made you his precious possession forever, I certainly mean forever. Your earthly death is not the end of the road, but the beginning because you are God's heritage. Further, there is no room for expressive individualism within Christianity because Christians should see what God has done for them. Therefore, the posture of praise toward, is toward God and not toward the self. And if you're tempted to worship something or someone other than God, then these verses are the course correction you need. You should be more excited about praising God than like your favorite sports team. Like all this happens very subtly. And I'm going to give you a pastoral confession about how this happens subtly with me. Here we go. March is my favorite month of the year. You know, I'd be thinking, why March? Like, it's still kind of brown. We're not even, we're not even in spring yet. We're, it could even snow. March is my favorite month of the year. The only person who probably could figure this out is my wife. But I'll tell you right now. Why? March Madness, of course. March Madness. It is the most wonderful month of the year. 68 teams come together to, for a winner go home tournament. I'll, I'll watch games I would normally never have a, an allegiance to. Like the Sisters of St. Mary could be playing Duke, and I'm rooting for the Sisters of St. Mary to beat Duke or whatever. Like I want, I love the upsets. Like the other night, Sharice fell asleep. It was like a late game. And like there's this upset brew, and I'm like, come on, Abilene Christian. Never knew you, but let's beat the big boys. I'm like, I'm, I'm into it. Best time of year. I just hunger for the drama to unfold. Yet, 
Even I need to ask myself, am I more eager to watch March Madness or come to church and praise God? Heart check, right? Am I more consumed with my bracket or my Bible? Fair diagnostic question. I mean, for sure, it's okay to enjoy sports or, or pick your favorite activity, right? What do you like to do? But what kind of time and attention do I give God in comparison to these other things that I enjoy? Perhaps being God's chosen heritage can rightly align my priorities and my praise. Also, verse 11, we see a powerful chronological picture of the Christian life which should cause us to praise. Think about what we've seen in terms of time, like 24 hours a day time. You were predestined and chosen before the foundation of the world, like before time. And after you were born, there was a determined time in which you were going to be redeemed by God. After you were redeemed, we read that there is more for you after you die because God has claimed you to be his inheritance, his heritage or his inheritance. Like, why has this happened to you, Christian? Well, the answer is the remainder of verse 11. According to the purpose of him who works all things. Some things? A few things? No. He works all things according to the counsel of whose will? My will? Your will? Nah. Nah. His will. I really want you to see, Christian, it's God who is sovereign over your redemption in your entire life. I mean, look at how these verses point to God's glorious plan of redemption for your life. Like how many times does it need to say in Ephesians 1 that all things, including your salvation, have happened according to God's purpose and plan? Is one time enough? Verse 5. How about twice? Verse 9. And now God, God's complete and utter, utter control over every millimeter is reiterated two more times in verse 11. What God's word is saying is not only that God is sovereign over what he has created, but he is working or implementing everything, everything according to his plan. And you, Christian, have been chosen to be his heritage, are a part of his plan, part of his plan to bring him praise. Don't, don't fall prey to the stream of thought that God is distant or like not in control. The God of the Bible is like not a deist. God did not create everything. Then after six days, sat on the, on the recliner, grabbed the cold one, and now he's watching it all unfold according to the counsel of our will. God isn't sitting on the couch on the edge of his seat watching the fourth quarter come down to the wire wondering who's going to win the ball game. Will, will the good side win or will the bad side or the evil side win? Nope. God continues to be at work. Anyone who believes in the God of the Bible must come to terms with God's sovereign will that is always at work. The idea that God acts capriciously is utterly foreign to this context and I think the entire Bible. His will, a thelema, used four times in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, is, it means that God is very carefully thought out. Here's the magnitude of God's willful activity in your everyday life. There is not a moment that is outside 
of God's merciful and gracious will. There's not a moment of your life outside of God's merciful and gracious will. If you are in Christ, I want to help settle this reality in your heart. We, we tend to unintentionally limit God's purpose and will to the moments we need God most. Right? Think about those moments when you've cried out to God. You've called out to God. What was going on? You had a bad day, so you rightly, rightly called out to God. Tragedy strikes, so you appropriately pray to God. Despair kicks in because you read that social media post, so you wrestle with God over what you read. My point is this. We try to figure out God's will and purpose when the uncomfortable realities of life press in. God's purpose and plan become relevant to us when we perceive we need God the most. But do not forget, and by the way, yes, when we need God, we call out, read the Psalms, and it is there. But do not forget that God is sovereign or in control between all those crisis moments. Between all of them. The reason why you are breathing air right now is because God is purposing or sustaining the air for you. That's a mercy. When I read the various passages in Ephesians about God's will, I not only think about God's will to choose and redeem and what God is doing in our lives, but I also consider God in creation and what he has created. What we see in creation, I think, is further, a further indication of God's plan and purpose at work. What we see in God's creation should also lead us to praise Here's one of a million examples of God's plan and purpose at work in what he has created. Have you ever heard of the bacterial flagellum? Maybe there's one of you out there. Nobody. Bacterial flagellum. I learned of it when I was studying um, intelligent design theories 12, 15 years ago. A bacterial flagellum is located in living organisms. So think bacteria located in living organisms. organisms, And uh, they have a propeller, a motor, clamps, and other parts. Think of it like a propeller of any motorized object. So think of a boat. It has a, has a motor on it. If you take off one part of the flagellum, it ceases to operate. The idea is that this bacteria is so complex and, and yet very small, microscopic, but so complex that it could not evolve, but it needed to be created and it needs to be sustained because if all the parts are not maintained, it ceases to operate. It's just done. Take off the propeller, it stops. Take off the other spinny thing, stops. Again, we can look at many aspects of creation, whether it's the Grand Canyon or the bacterial flagellum and get a sense of God's plan and purpose throughout his creation. You can see the beauty, you can see the order, and it all should lead us to praise. Like, we don't worship creation. I mean, this is another corrective. When we look at the Grand Canyon, we don't worship the Grand Canyon. We worship the one who made the Grand Canyon, who made the ground the water, the skies, the star. I want to make one point about verse 12 before ending with the importance of proper worship because I've spent all of our time in verse 11 thus far. 
Here's our second verse for the day. We have been predestined. We are God's heritage so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you are God's heritage, you have every reason to hope. The word, the word hope in the Bible is not like how children hope for a present on their birthday. When a child hopes for something on their birthday, their chance that their hope will not be met with reality. There's that, there's that chance, like I hope I get this and you don't, and there's that chance. Like back, back to sports for a moment. Growing up, I watched the Chicago Cubs on WGN, just kind of a thing, we're Cub fans. I always hoped that the Cubs were going to win, and up until 2016, when they won the World Series, I met, was met with a lot of disappointment. But I had the hope. Biblical hope is vastly different, vastly different. If you have put your hope in Christ, two realities are at work at the same time. First, you have an eager expectation for your present and your future. Like the Greek word for hope can also be translated as, very quite literally, eager expectation. You are emotionally invested in what Christ has promised you. Second, your hope is based upon a foundation of truth. What Christ has promised is not flimsy or unstable. The promises of Christ are sure and secure. For example, when you read this from the Gospel of Matthew, these words, we should see the promise. Go, go right away. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Get in language from the book of Daniel. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I mean, just go read the book of Revelation. <laughs> when you read these verses, or these words, you can be sure that Jesus will come back. You can have a hope, a eager expectation that we'll, there will be a day when Jesus once again will be faithful to what he has promised. If past performance predicts future behavior, then we can be sure of Christ's second coming. Jesus will come back. We have a hope based upon the truth of God's promises. My hope in a birthday present or in a, in a Chicago Cubs victory, which is not looking good this year, has a flimsy foundation. My hope in God, because of Christ, is a rock-solid foundation. Rock-solid. Our hope in God for his faithfulness to us is another reason us to praise God. We can now circle back to our response to God who purposed and planned our redemption and made you his heritage. We can circle back to our response to the creator of the universe who continues to sustain the universe. Even the most minute parts of his creation like a bacterial flagellum. I found this particular quote, pass, uh, helpful from Pastor Brian Chapel. He said this, what would the result of God's designing all the world history and all of Israel's history so that these people of the covenant would be the first to bow the knee to Jesus? What would be the result? Like, if you're part of that, what is the result? Praise, praise, praise at the amazing heart and plan of God. Because of everything God has done for his elect people through Christ, God deserves all the praise and glory. 
even what God has done in creation, which he wants you to enjoy. He wants you to enjoy what he's created. That can lead us to praise. Your creative ability, your creative ability, which you desire to be expressed, is to the praise of God's glory. The sports activity that you play in is to the praise of, of God's glory. Kids, if you get that good grade in school, it is to the praise of God's glory. And the most excellent reason to praise God is because of everything he has done for you in Christ. I've done this once. I'm going to do it again. Just consider what God has done for you since we began this journey in Ephesians. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has chose you he chose you before Genesis 1-1, before the foundation of the world. God chose you to be holy and blameless, in which you are to live out in Christ. God predestined you to be an adopted son or daughter of a glorious and loving Father. God the Father sent God the Son to the cross to redeem you from sin and to forgive you of your sins. God the Son agreed with God the Father that his death will be the path of redemption. God has lavished upon you his grace. He's just poured it upon you. You didn't jump into the ocean. He pushed you into the ocean of his grace. And God has chosen you to be his heritage. Again, a decision that was made in eternity past, which has secured you for all eternity. And as we're going to see two weeks from now, the promised Holy Spirit seals you to God forever. There is a whole lot God has done for us. And so I ask you, what do you do with that? What is your response? Certainly, it's impossible to turn things in on, our, on ourselves at this point. But the only appropriate response is to praise him with your lips and with your heart and indeed live your entire life as an act of worship to your gracious and loving God. So let's praise him, saints. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.